power and blessing of God. There is physical power, military power. You other in the Philippines, you are given maybe verbal or political power to gain an advantage of, uh, over someone, to win an argument, or to really stir up the masses to do their own thing. People use magic to sacrifice gods, spells, astrology, tarot cards, and talismans. Their futures and that of their families. You might dismiss one or more of these methods as barbaric or superstitious, or think that one of these methods works better than the others, but at the heart of it all, they are all the same. They're all the same because at the root of it is selfishness, fear, and a desire for control over the circumstances that come to be out of our control. And none of them provide any kind of lasting security. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 teaches us about a far greater power that's at the disposal of those who believe in Jesus Christ, Christ's power, his resurrection power. And yet many Christians live without awareness of this power, spiritual power. Therefore, Paul prays on their behalf, more specifically, he prays on behalf of the Ephesian believers in this context, that they would have the Spirit's wisdom to believe and experience Christ's power. That's really the main point of, of this passage is that we ought to also then pray to the Father of glory for the Spirit's wisdom that we might know Christ's power. And that I'll follow that outline. First, talk about the Spirit's wisdom. Secondly, about the Father's glory. And then thirdly, about Christ's power. So first, Spirit's wisdom. We see that in verses 15 to 18. He begins, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So the phrase, for this reason, is linking this passage to everything that came before that we talked about last week. All the spiritual blessings that we have because of the Father's adoption of us as, as sons and for the Christ's redemption of us and the Spirit's sealing of us. So that all those spiritual blessings, so for that reason, now Paul begins uh, this prayer. And and then he adds this. He says, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So having heard report that the Ephesian, the church, the believers have faith in the Lord Jesus and that they also love the fellow saints, uh, all the saints that are among them, uh, he now knows that this spiritual blessings that he just talked about in verses 3 to 14 belong to them. That this, their, their faith in Jesus and their love toward the saints is proof, evidence for Paul of the fact that these spiritual blessings now belong to them. And after realizing that, Paul now gives thanks to God. He's, he's thanks to, he praises God, and then now he prays on behalf of these Ephesians believers. And this is not a point to be glossed over, because Paul's not mentioning just the faith and love of the saints in passing. This is a thoughtful theological statement, because he says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, faith Hope and love are, are the defining marks of the Christian. The three, the things that define the Christian above all things. And so here he mentions faith and he mentions love. And later he will also mention hope in verse 18. It's, that's what those things define the Christian because Christian has faith not in themselves or anything else or anyone else, but in the Lord Jesus for their salvation. That's their faith that defines them. Christians also have hope. Because they have the Holy Spirit who is a deposit, the down payment, the guarantee that the, all the spiritual blessings that God promises will be consummated and fulfilled. So we have hope in that spirit. And then, and then finally, we have love toward God and toward our neighbor because the Father has loved us first. 
And so receive that love and are transformed by that love to love others, to love one another, and to love God. And so that's so faith, hope, and love define us as a Christian. So that's why he's mentioning those things. And it's important to hold those things together as believers because it's easy to kind of separate them out. Faith in the Lord Jesus and love toward all the saints. On the one hand, some Christians seem to have faith, a lot of faith in the Lord Jesus, but not a lot of love toward the saints. Their faith is very private and individualistic. They have their own private devotions and prayer times, which is great. I mean, we should all have that. But they do not gather regularly with other believers. They seem uncomfortable with intimacy and commitment. And I can guarantee you that such a believer may flourish for a little bit, but will not bear much fruit. Because their faith will soon dwindle. On the other hand, some Christians seem to have love toward all the saints, but they don't seem to really have faith in the Lord. For them, church is more like a social club. They like hanging out with a whole bunch of really nice people, so they go to all the church events and functions. But they're mistaking their community's faith for their own. They don't have a personal faith in the Lord Jesus. And so what happens is when this person moves away, let's say they move away to another state for college or they relocate for another job somewhere else, they don't plug into a healthy local church right away and they begin to lose faith and Why? Because they never had their personal faith to begin with. It wasn't their own. They were mistaking their community's faith for their own. They loved toward the saints, but they had no faith in the Lord Jesus. It's kind of like coal. Like if you guys have ever done barbecue, you put a whole bunch of coal in the barbecue you know, pit and then you burn them. You can never tell which coals have actually caught fire because it's all really hot. It's only when you spill them on the ground and separate them all out, that's when you can tell when a coal is really caught fire or not. But you have to have a personal faith, believe in the Lord Jesus, and have love toward the saints. You can't have one without the other. Right? If you turn later in verses 22 to 23, Paul describes Christ as the head of the church, and he describes the church as his body. How can you love someone's head and not their body? How can you love someone's body and not their head? It's impossible because they're one person. You can't say, I love God, I love Jesus, but oh, I don't really love the church. There is no such thing. You can't say, oh, I love the church, but I don't, you know, I don't really want to be exclusive and, and have exclusive Faith in the Lord Jesus, love toward the saints, they stay together. You have to hold them together. And then so Paul says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you because he has seen these evidences, love toward the saints and faith in the Lord. He now says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Now, uh, Paul writes, the, the way that Paul writes this here, it's clear that this is not the only occasion Paul is praying for the Ephesians. This is his regular practice, right? He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's really putting into practice what he taught in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 to 18. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, right? And Paul's not giving thanks to God because of something specific that the Ephesians believers did for him. No, he's thanking them and uh, thanking God for them and praying for them because he knows that they are God's people, that they belong to him. And what does it mean that Paul does not cease to give thanks, remembering them in his prayer? I mean, sometimes people wonder, like, how can you really pray without ceasing, right? How do you pray without ceasing? Do you pray all the time? Is that all you do? Do you ever eat? I mean, do you ever, you know, go to church service? Like, 
I mean, do you ever, I mean, what, how do you pray without ceasing? It's helpful to, to compare this to a parallel passage in Colossians. Uh, the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians have a lot of substantial parallels, and most likely because Paul probably wrote them in close succession to each other. So he wrote them in a similar time in his life, and he probably had similar concerns in mind as he was writing those two letters. And in a parallel passage in Colossians 1.9, it says this, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Very similar. But that additional phrase is very helpful. It's illuminating for understanding this passage because he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So what he's saying here is that since that day he heard about them and heard about this, he has continued to pray for them. He hasn't stopped praying for them. His prayer for them doesn't have an expiration date, right? So some people, when they tell us, oh, hey, I want to pray for you, they'll pray for us maybe a couple times and they stop, right? Paul's saying, no, I haven't stopped. I keep praying. He's not saying that's all he does. He's not saying that he prays all day long, every second of the day. But what he's saying is, you know what? Every, I pray for you regularly. Every time I'm on my knees to pray to the Father, I remember you. I thank God for you, and I pray for you. I have not ceased to pray for you. It is still my practice to this day to pray for you. And, and why does Paul do that? Why does he pray continually? And we can see why he does it by looking at what he prays for in verses 17 to 19. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that, that we may know, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, right? So the motivation for Paul's prayer is very simple. We can't know God, unless he gives us the spirit of wisdom, Paul has to pray. Because we can't know God apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And many of us uh, sitting here were, were raised up in Christian homes uh, and grew up as part of the church. And consequently, we know a lot of things about God. But the fact that we know these things don't mean that we actually believe them. We know them, but we don't like, cognitive knowledge doesn't automatically translate into experiential knowledge. Theoretical knowledge doesn't automatically translate into practical knowledge. And it's the spirit of God that takes the knowledge in our heads and, and impresses them deeply in our hearts so that we actually believe them and live by them. And as Christians, I think we have all experienced this. Right? There's, there's a, perhaps you've heard this truth in a sermon one time, and, and you know, you've heard it countless times, actually. But then there's that one particular Sunday morning, and you're sitting in pews, and you he hear the same, ser same sermon, the same truth, but then all of a sudden, you have an aha moment. It clicks for you. It changes your life. You guys know that expression? Like, I mean, if you have a bending machine, right, like you try to put a quarter in, and oftentimes, like, it gets stuck, right? And you have to kind of shove it a couple times, and then the penny drops. And then now the machine works, right? So that's like that for a lot of us. We have a lot of truths rammed in there, right? But the penny hasn't dropped for all of them. We haven't really quite got it. And it's the Spirit of God that works in our lives and in our hearts to bring that to bear on our lives so that we really believe it and live by it. And that's essential. And because Paul is so aware of this truth, that the Spirit of God has to make these truths work in our lives, he prays for them. 
because he knows he can't make that happen in his own strength. I hope you have thought about this uh, as, as the church because that, what that means is all our preaching, all our ministry, all our evangelism is in vain apart from the illumination of the Spirit. It's no wonder then that Paul prays without ceasing for the Ephesians. It's no wonder then that every place, everywhere, revival was always preceded by concerted efforts to pray together. If we really want to see each other grow in our knowledge of God, we must pray to God the Father for the Holy Spirit. We pray for one another. Our praying for one another is one of the, the strongest, reliable, most reliable evidences of our love for one another. Why is that? Because if we love one another, if we really love one another, and we will look at each other's lives, and we will see a brother a Christian brother, and a crippling sin in his life. And we'll see a sister whose, whose lack of faith is hampering her growth. And we will see a member of the same family of God who, whom Satan is robbing of joy in God. And we will desperately want to help them because we love them, but we will feel helpless because we can't bring that change in that person's life. We can't get that person to believe the truth of God. And so that will drive us to our knees. That's why our prayer for one another is one of the clearest evidences of our love for one another. Since we began meeting as, 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 as a church for corporate worship in my house like a couple years ago, we have always emphasized prayer for this reason. That's why we have a prayer service every week on Friday nights. Friday nights of all times, right? That's prime time for, you know, end of the week, you know, relax, unwind, spiritual life, where we gather to pray. Why? Because we believe this. We believe that this has to happen in the lives of people. Spirit has to work. That's why we pray for 45 minutes before church starts, the service starts on Sunday morning, we pray together for the service. That's why we pray during the service too. We pray because we know we desperately need God's help because we know that the Spirit has to illumine. The Spirit's wisdom must be at work in our lives for us to see, for the scales to fall from our eyes and for us to see the truth, to know the truth. So I encourage you, the, the three days of prayer and fasting, participate in this, this, this week, thir- Wednesday to Friday, and we created some guides for you that can help you to pray, to inform your prayer during that time. It's based on Ephesians 1. After praying uh, for the Spirit's wisdom, uh, Paul specifies why he wants the Spirit of wisdom to help us understand. And I sum that all up in the phrase, Father's glory. And that's to summarize the two points that he prays for in verse 18. First, notice that he addresses God as the Father of glory in verse 17. Uh, the glory of God is really the, 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 the display of the attributes of God. Uh, it's the deity on display. All his perfections, his beauty, his holiness, that's his glory. His displaying of that, that's his glory. And that's why, re- truly, in it, to be strict, uh, it's nothing in the world is glorious except for God. Because he alone, that's its Greek's glory is, a, is deity on display. So when we say something is glorious, we're saying that, oh, it reflects God's glory, right? A mountain range is glorious because it reflects God's magnificence. And now, that if that's the glory of God, see what Paul says in verse 18. This is 
mind-boggling. Praise that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. God's glory, God's deity on display, his perfections, his beauty, his holiness, his power is not displayed primarily in the seemingly infinite cosmos, but in us. We are God's glorious inheritance. Paul wants believers to see that, believe that. Throughout the Old Testament, the people whom God redeemed for himself were described as his inheritance. For example, Deuteronomy 9.29, it says, They are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm, right? This is really a reiteration of what Paul said early in verse 14 when he says that we are God's prized possession, right? It's the hope that God has called us to. The Spirit of God has put a seal on us saying this is God's. This belongs to God. It says his inheritance. And so we are God's glorious inheritance. The Father of glory. His glory is displayed in us. His glorious inheritance. What that means is this. We're not just, you know, cheap trinkets in the Father's treasure. We are his rich. We are the crown jewel. We are the glorious inheritance. That's how God sees us because we are in Christ Jesus. That should fill us with wonder and gratitude and unwavering security in him. And so he prays for a spirit of wisdom, spirit's wisdom, and he prays for the Father's glory. And then lastly, he prays for the Christ's power. And he emphasized this third point because it's something that the Ephesians really need to get. And he says in verses 19 to 21, that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Understanding the context of the Gentile converts to Christianity in Ephesus, whom Paul particularly has in mind as he's writing this letter, were still very much enticed by and entangled in the spiritual forces of first century paganism. Uh, and you can find examples of this in the Bible. And, but, but before I get to that, so Ephesus was, e- even though it was a religiously pluralistic city, uh, it had one really prominent uh, idol and religion. Uh, it was the cult of Artemis. Right? Artemis is the, the Greek goddess of fertility, or the wild animal. And, uh, but they elevated her to the status of basically supreme God, and they called her Lord. And they believed that she ruled both the world above, the spiritual realm of spirits, as well as the world on earth, the terrestrial forces, and as well as the world under, the spirits in the underworld. So they believed that Artemis ruled the whole uh, uh, world. And to, uh, to illustrate how big this cult was, like they, they had a temple of Artemis, which was, uh, are you guys, have you guys seen a picture of the Parthenon? in Athens, right? So that's the largest surviving Greek temple that we have today. The temple of Artemis was four times the size. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. So this was really the hub. Ephesus was the hub of that. And, and to illustrate, if, if you look at Acts 19, 11 to 41, Luke records a very revealing story about the context, the religious context of Ephesus. 
So what happens is there's, there's these Jewish uh, exorcists, they're itinerant exorcists. They make a living by exorcising demons, and they travel around. And they, are, they were sons of, of a high priest named Sceva. And it says that they began to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. But to their great embarrassment, when they invoked the name of Jesus whom Paul proclaims, the evil spirits pounced on them, overpowered them, so that they fled naked. So when this happened, Paul Luke, Luke continues to record this. Right after this happened, it says that this became known to everyone in, in, in Ephesus, and that the fear uh, fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, was extolled. Now, because of that, many believers, it says, who are secretly indulging in the magical arts and, and basically seeking and treating the, the, the cult, uh, the, 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 the idol Artemis, uh, it says they brought out all their books full of incantations and the magical practices, and then they burned them in public, in the public square. And Luke is recording all of this in Acts 19. And it says that what they burned that day amounted to 50,000 pieces of silver. So that's pieces of silver is a reference to the Greek drachma, the currency. So one silver is a day's wage. So that's a 50,000 days wage. So if you count $15 as the average rate of for, for an hourly, hourly wage, that's about $6 million in today's currency. So this is, and these are believers who are, who are bringing out this stuff that they had in there. So this reveals the extent to which this cult had an influence over the lives of the, the Christian converts in Ephesus. Six million dollars worth of books. I mean, even if they got fleeced for every one of those books, I mean, that's a lot of books, right, that these people had. Right, so after this event, and then Luke continues that there was a silversmith named Demetrius who made a living by selling little silver shrines of Artemis. That's how he made his living. And he says that he got, he got concerned that he's losing business because of Paul and these converts. So he gathers up all his fellow craftsmen and starts a riot, trying to drive Paul and his companions out of the city of Ephesus. So that's the context to which Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians. Now, this is really helpful for understanding it because, one, we, it, it tells us that the, the cults, the magical arts, were still highly influential and lucrative, but also that Christianity was making significant inroads in that context. But old habits die hard, right? And so Christians, a lot of them, were still holding on to these habits. And so Paul is aware of this as he writes this. And, and he's saying, basically, you don't want to, don't use incantations and, you know, charms and to, to gain control over circumstances problems of daily life, you turn to the Lord Jesus instead, the Lord Jesus. And, and that's why he's so emphatic in verses 19 to 21. Re read that again with me, and as we do that, notice just the proliferation of all these power words, right? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and raised him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. In that short few verses, Paul nearly exhausts the bank of the Greek vocabulary for terms related to power. He uses them all, like almost all of them, right? He's, he's emphasizing that, immeasurable greatness, power, great might. And all of these words are words that were characteristically used in the magical arts during that time. 
you find them in 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 the little in the magic books that have survived in inscriptions on and on buildings and stuff like you find these incantations that they use these words and and so and so and he's saying that basically that these gods that you rely on these idols that you seek are impotent compared to the surpassing greatness and power of christ christ's power and what's the proof of this power that christ has how do we know that he has the, the, the immeasurable greatness of his power? How was God's immeasurable power displayed? Paul gives his answer in four parallel phrases in verses 20 to 23. God worked his great might in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. So basically the proof of Christ's immeasurable power is in his resurrection from the dead and his session, what we call his, him being seated at the right hand of the Father and reigning and him being, and, and subjecting all things under his feet and then having, and being given to the church as head over all things. Those four things is what proves to us that he has victorious and conquered all things and now he has been given to the church. And what are the things that he subjected under his feet? The words rule and authority can be used to refer to human authorities, uh, and they, they can be. Uh, and the spiritual realm is seen throughout Scripture as one that's more significant uh, than the earthly realm. So when you have spiritual authority, you don't need, I mean, you, you, you should understand that it's involving all kinds of authority. Uh, and the words rule, authority, power, and dominion are also all words that, that are very commonly used in Jewish texts and Gentile uh, magical now, and to refer to angelic powers, rule, authority, power, and dominion. And Paul consistently uses them in that way in his epistles. So Paul is saying that all the spiritual forces are subject to Christ. And the popular belief at the time was that the spirits dwelled in the realm above. And, the, and, and, and so intentionally, Paul writes here that Christ is far above all authority, right? All rule, authority, power, and dominion. So he's saying that, you know what? He's not even on the same plane. Right? You think of spirits as being in the realm above. Christ is far above. He surpasses them. And, and this is a spiritual reign. We know that because he's in the heavenly places. He's not reigning from an earthly political place. And, and God displayed his infinite power in Christ Jesus, and ultimately in Christ Jesus. And, and Colossians 2, 13 to 15 also speak of this same reality. And it's very revealing and helpful uh, for us as we try to think about how did Christ attain this for us? How did Christ display God's power? He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Do you guys follow that? So what's going on here is this. It's we had sinned against God. And because we had sinned against him, there was a record of debt against us. What that means is the spiritual forces of evil had a claim on us. Satan, his name means the accuser. He had basis to make a successful accusation in the court, in, in the heavenly court. He had a claim 
on us. There was a record of debt that stood against us with this legal demands. And then how did, in that context, God intervene and show his power? Christ nailed our sins to the cross. He died for us. He bore our punishment. And then he rose from the dead, defeating sin and death. And he was raised to the heavenly place and seated by the Father's hand, right hand, to reign over all these evil, evil spirits and forces. And in doing that, what God did was he silenced our accuser. And he erased the claim that our accuser had on us so that we are no longer in the dominion of darkness, but we are in the kingdom It's immeasurable. For that reason, Christ is above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Name a name, to name a name, that expression is a technical expression that is also used in incantation. You name the right names. That's a great, that's typically used, that's how you gain control and you invoke the right spirit. You name names. And so that's why it's really interesting that this really rare phrase, it only occurs two more times in the entire Greek New Testament. And that one, one of the times is when the Jewish itinerant exorcists. Uh, the sons of Sikiva are in Ephesus, and they name the name of Jesus. In vain, of course, because they don't actually believe in him. They don't know him. What Paul is saying is this. You don't need to name any the fears you have, the powers and influences over your life. You don't need to resort to any other. The name of Christ is above every name that is named. Unless you think that, oh, maybe in the future there will be other greater names. No, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. There will never be a name that's greater than the name of Jesus. He's so emphatic. I mean, you can't, he doesn't, he doesn't leave any room for speculation. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion subjected to him. Every name that is named, his, his name is above all of those things. That means our futures are not determined by the stars or by those petty, fickle, so-called gods and goddesses. Loving Pure in Pray for one another to the Father of glory, for the Spirit's wisdom, so that we get Christ's power. Amen? In many parts of the world, uh, we still find uh, animistic cultures that are very similar to... When uh, Hannah and I went on a mission trip uh, to Myanmar in 2009 to support a missionary that was already there, uh, we met a Burmese uh, guide. I mean, he, that's, he makes a living that way, so he, he speaks a little bit of... And he knows the area really well, so he just looks around for foreigners, basically. And when he sees them, he comes over and says, hey, I'll take you around if you pay me, right? So, so we're like, hey, I'm, why not? Look, so we pay him, we'll go around. And, and one day, we wanted to go visit the, the local uh, uh, spirit doctor so that we could tell her about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we told him that, he was aghast. He's like, no, you don't want to go to the spirit doctor. 
Uh, and, and, and this is ridiculous because we're paying him. Like, hey, like, we paid you. Like, what do you mean you don't want to go? Like, <laughs> it's a, and, and he, we're, we're paying him a handsome sum too, but he's willing to forego a day's wage to not go to spirit doctor. So we probed a little bit more. Why don't you want to go? And he says, well, you know, when I was a little younger, I visited, visited her with my family, and he mentioned that she became possessed by a demon and started speaking in this really deep uh, demonic voice. And he got frightened out of his, you know, the daylights out of him. And, and so the, after that, he said he had dreams every day of her appearing and haunting him. Uh, and, and he says that because of, that didn't stop, uh, several years of that happened. And then he went to a Buddhist monk who, by the way, is not even supposed to believe in these things, uh, if you're a good Buddhist. And then goes to Buddhist monks, pays, uh, pays an arm and a leg to get this amulet. I don't, I don't remember if it was an amulet or a tattoo. But, and then after that, he says the demon started appearing, stopped appearing in his dreams. So, I mean, obviously, demon, evil spirits in cahoots to keep Burmese people in bondage. Uh, and so, so that's, that, that was his, so he wouldn't go. I mean, so we're like, okay. Then we, so we went by ourselves, and we told the spirit doctor about the Lord Jesus. And we told her that, hey, you, I know you, you serve a spirit, but we serve the Holy Spirit, who is the Lord over all spirits. We told her that, and then, and then we left. I mean, she was a little bit maybe uncomfortable, but she listened to us politely and then we left and and he warned us before we went our tour guide truly if you go she will appear to you and bother you and haunt you in your dreams every day none of us had a dream (laughs) overall they have no power You know, this, we might dismiss it as, oh, in the West, we don't really have to worry about it. We will see increasingly more of that. Because we're in a postmodern context where there is a surge of interest in spiritism. You don't need to go to Salem to find spiritists and mediums. They're all over the city. People are looking to them, turning to them. And we have the message of hope to tell them, you don't need to name any other name. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he ever been involved in you need to confess and renounce right away and confess and reject that and even for those of us who dismissed spirits as figments of the imagination even those people turn to something when they feel like they're losing control when they feel like they're losing control some people turn to anger They get angry when things spiral out of control. And their anger is not just an expression of their frustration, but it's an attempt, a veiled attempt to control their circumstances, right? An angry husband, right, skulks around the house and gives his wife the silent treatment so that he can manipulate her to do what he wants. An angry driver honks angrily and and then cuts someone off and then, you know, glares out the window. Why? Because he wants to cower other drivers into subjection. You should drive like I And letting our worldly desires for superficial comfort grow in so that we grow angry when those things are threatened and we quarrel with other people. It says, Scripture describes that as demonic activity. James 4, 7, it, it describes that Ephesians 4, 26, 27, it tells us that anger is something that gives opportunity, a foothold to the devil. You might not believe in devils, but the devil is active. 
Some people turn to fear and anxiety when they feel like they're losing control. They worry excessively, and then their mind's going to overdrive, and then they take all things into their own hands to find a solution for themselves, rather than casting their anxieties on God and entrusting themselves to God's care. And 1 Peter 5, 6-8 tells us that anxiety in the midst of suffering also leaves an opening for the devil who prowls around like a lion. We don't need to turn to anger. We don't need to turn to anxiety. We don't need to turn to earthly comforts for our security. We don't need to name any other name. Because Christ is seated far above all rule, authority, power, and dominion. And then when we feel embattled by the situations in our lives, we have to remember that Christ is still enthroned above. He's not rattled by what's happening in our lives. He's not faith. We need to pray for each other so that we can know Christ and live in light of him. And the implications of this truth are staggering. Read 22 to 23 with me. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, right? Notice the relationship between Christ and his church. Christ is head over all things and has been given to the church, and the church is now described as his body, right? That means the authority and power incumbent upon Christ, who was a supreme Lord and head over all things, is available to us as his people, as his body. We have all the resources to fulfill Christ's commission to us. Verse 23, it says that we are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, right? That means, of course, if you are not yet a believer, this power doesn't belong to you. You are not yet part of his body. And if you're going to repent of your sins and submit to the lordship of Christ, then you can be a part of his body. There's only two types of people in the world, right? Those who willingly submit themselves to the lordship of Christ and those who in the future will be subjected to him. He will reign. His name is above all names. And we should remind freedom, and power that he has given us. For the church, then, as the family of God, this means that we are the fullness of Christ. We have been filled by Christ. And, and it, later in Ephesians 5.18, Paul also speaks of being filled with the Spirit of Christ. Right? So we are the receptacles that have been filled by Christ, and therefore we are, as a church, his fullness. That means we are now the means, the instrument by which Christ fills all in all. We overflow, we fill all in all. That's our commission as a church. Put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. All things, that's what it means. Everything in heaven and above will be subjected to Christ. And our commission is to fill all in all with the glory of Christ. God's original charge, if you guys remember from our series in Genesis, uh, just before this, Genesis 1.28, his original charge to humanity was, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion. They failed in the first commandment. And subsequently their successor, the nation of Israel, the sons of Jacob also failed to fulfill. full 
they did what was said. They made a promise to God. Yes. God fulfilled his end of the bargain. He, he, he fulfilled his promise. They were not loyal to him. And that commission was fulfilled by Jesus now as his body it's our ongoing commission to fill all in all with his glory and power prophet Habakkuk prophesied in 2.14 of his, his book uh, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea that time is and our And this is important because our Lord is not some local parochial deity. Our Lord is not limited in his interests and influences to the United States of America. Our Lord is the Lord over all of the Lord over the heavens and the earth. And that's why it is right that he's worshipped in all of the world. And that's why it is wrong that in parts of Cambridge, there are people who don't acknowledge him or worship him. That's why it is wrong that in, throughout the world, there are Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists, 86% of whom don't even know a Christian. There's something profoundly wrong and amiss about that because God is the glorious Lord over all and he should be worshipped in the ends of the earth. That's our glorious call. His body. That's why some of us made personal sacrifices, family sacrifices, career sacrifices to be a part of this mission that we are we have here in this church. And it's Christ's power that gives us confidence for our ministry and mission as the church. Because if we truly grasp the breath and depth of Christ's power transforms the earth. And the way we live would be different. The way we pray would be different. Think about your life for a moment. Think for a moment about the most stubborn, intractable sin in your life. Maybe you've tried to deal with for years. You believe Think about a neighbor or a family member or friend that you try to witness to. But in your mind, as you think about them, oh, she's never. He is never. We have Christ's power at our disposal to push the spiritual forces of evil into retreat and to rest, reclaim and rescue those who are still in, imprisoned in their camp. But we have a tendency to forget this truth, and that's why this passage is so important. We can remember to exhort one another, remind one another. We can pray for one another for, to the Father of glory, for the Spirit's wisdom that we might know
He wants to know. Spirit of wisdom and of revelation. So we may truly know you as we ought to know you in your glory, O Father. To know your Son in all his power and might and rule. live not by sight but by faith we can truly be the fullness 